0: Planetary Society All Stars, look back at 2020 this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome and Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. It's a tradition, four of my colleagues are here with a review of the past year and a look ahead. 2020 wasn't so bad once you got off the surface of our world. Bruce Betts is part of this quartet. He'll stick around for the last What's Up before 2021. We'll offer one of the coolest prizes ever in the new Space Trivia Contest. Here's a program note. In view of the holiday, Casey Dreyer and I have decided to push the next Space Policy Edition show from New Year's Day to the following Friday, January 8th. I hope you'll join us. I also want to thank each of you who has given us a review or rating in Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, also for your many wonderful holiday greetings. They are much appreciated. The December 25 edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter, shares a very cool image of the James Webb Space Telescope. The Giant Eye's multi-layer sun was successfully deployed for the last time before its planned launch in October of 2021. You'll hear more about the JWST later in the show, along with what China's Chang'e 5 will be up to now that it has dropped off its collection of lunar material. The spacecraft might become a solar observation platform. The Planetary Society is celebrating NASA authorization for the missions that will bring samples from Mars to Earth. You'll hear us talk about this major story as well in the next few minutes. Details and more are at planetary.org slash downlink. I'm lucky to work with some of the smartest, most passionate people on the planet. Each of them is dedicated to the mission and vision of the Planetary Society. You've almost certainly heard from four of them in earlier planetary radio appearances or elsewhere, but we've never before gathered for a PlanRad conversation. We had a lot to talk about, so here's our New Year's present for you. Bruce Betts is the Society's Chief Scientist. Jason Davis is our Editorial Director. Casey Dreyer is Chief Advocate and Senior Space Policy Advisor. And Kate Howells is our Communication Strategy and Canadian Space Policy Advisor. Let's start with what is probably the thing that made the most news in this year of 2020. Jason, I would guess that that was SpaceX uh, flying humans up to the ISS.
1: That was definitely the most memorable moment for me personally, and uh, I think in terms of general news, it really caught uh, a lot of the public's attention. So this was the first crewed orbital space flight and the first commercial flight to the ISS on SpaceX's Dragon vehicle. That was Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley. They launched in May, came back in August. That was a pretty exciting moment, and uh, it was also, just from a programmatic standpoint, a huge milestone for both SpaceX and NASA. It paves the way to have more people on the uh, International Space Station at any given time. And um, they've already done uh, a second launch at this point, and a full-fledged crew is up there now. So pretty big moment in 2020.
0: Kate Howells, as our international representative, is this something that made uh, as much of a splash elsewhere around the world as it did here in the USA?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time... American astronauts do something spectacular, the rest of the world pays attention. I mean, we saw this in the Apollo program. It wasn't just Americans landing on the moon, although perhaps in the States that was the perspective, but everywhere else we saw it, you know, as humans landing on the moon. And likewise, this advancement in commercial spaceflight is very important for everybody around the world who's interested in getting people out into space. Plus, on a practical level, having more spacecraft that can take people into orbit and bigger Spacecraft that can carry more people, that opens up spots for international astronauts to fly to the ISS as well. So that's good for everybody.
0: With a Canadian scheduled for an
2: upcoming flight, right? Indeed, yes. Well, upcoming a a little ways in the future.
0: Casey, certainly not a new topic uh, for us on the Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio, but this really says that something has paid off, right? It It was a big gamble.
3: It was. I mean, we can go back 10 years. There was a big policy fight about whether to go all in on commercial crew as a way to replace the capability lost from the shuttle. This was the apotheosis of that gamble or or that effort was to send people into space using this new way of doing business. And even more importantly, I would add the second flight, the first operational flight that launched six months later, right on time seems to be doing perfectly well with a full crew complement of four astronauts, including one Japanese participant going up to the International Space Station, to add on what Kate was saying. This is a big deal policy-wise. It proved this new way of doing business with commercial partners, and it also reduces U.S. reliance on Russia to get to its own space station. And that will fundamentally, I think, change the dynamic between U.S. and Russian space programs, and particularly for the Russian space program, which has benefited financially, significant financial assistance from the U.S. in order to maintain this launch capability uh, to the space station. So they're going to have to really reevaluate and reconsider how they are going to fund their own program.
0: To follow up on this, uh, Jim Bridenstine on this show, and I'm sure elsewhere, said that we will see more American astronauts on Soyuz flights, Russian flights, uh, even with them flying up on Crew Dragon and soon the Boeing uh, spacecraft. Does that still look like it's going to happen? Do we have Americans scheduled for Soyuz flights?
3: They want to maintain a large set of options, right? So if there's a failure in any one launch system, you don't preclude access to the station. So this is why they always wanted to have at least two commercial providers. And then I think it will depend on the overall relationship between U.S. and Russian Uh, space agencies to continue that relationship going forward as well.
0: Lots of stuff going on in low Earth orbit. I think we're all to be congratulated for not leading with this next topic, (laughs) uh, since it is the one that is nearest and dearest to all of
4: us. Bruce, how is Lightsail 2 doing? It's doing well. It's still flying around up there, and uh, we're trying to keep sailing and learn from the what we're doing is we go around the Earth, we are gradually coming down as we expected, but very gradually uh, coming down due to drag from the what little atmosphere is up there. We're taking uh, all sorts of pictures to record not only the engineering of the sail and the booms, but also pretty pictures that are uh, in- inspiring and keep the idea out there that solar sailing is a viable propulsion technique for the future, including for small spacecraft like CubeSats, which is what we've demonstrated for the first time.
0: Uh, remind us of a couple of things. Where can people see the pictures and follow along uh, with the mission? Sail.planetary.org. That's easy. Okay, here's the second one. It's pretty much steering itself now, right? Is How much human intervention is there in what sail 2 is up to?
4: it's always executing the commands automatically but we're uplinking the commands so there's actually a fair amount of interaction in terms of uplink and downlink and planning different activities and trying to figure out the standard you get a glitch here you get a glitch there why to do this how do we how's our performance over time which is gradually degrading as batteries uh, the rechargeable batteries so just like any rechargeable batteries they're getting Less and less efficient, so we're having more to think about power and and the like. So daily we communicate with it, or at least we try to, usually a few times a day. But in terms of executing imaging, executing turns, uh, that's all automated for any given 24-hour period.
0: So what's the outlook? Weeks, months, decades to go? (laughs) Uh,
4: It's at least months at the rate it's going. It's hard to predict because the atmosphere varies. And also we're flying something that uh, people haven't flown up at that altitude. So we're actually learning something from how long it is staying up there much longer than predictions originally. And partly that's due to solar sailing and partly it's due to the complexity of modeling a big shiny sail in a low mass spacecraft.
0: Jason Davis, it would seem that uh, LightSail 2's legacy is assured because we see its uh, influence over other upcoming missions.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was uh, watching a video of our event for the LightSail 2 launch in Florida, and uh, Dave Spencer the um, project manager. David mentioned that um, a lot of people ask about LightSail 3, and he uh, he said in this video I was watching that he always points to NEA Scout, and this is uh, NASA's near-earth asteroid scout mission. It is a small CubeSat mission just like uh, LightSail 2. It's about double the size of, of LightSail with the core, which is still pretty small for the spacecraft itself. It has a bigger sail as well. And uh, if all goes well, uh, it will launch in 2021. So we'll actually get to see it fly. So it'll go on the maiden mission of the Space Launch System, which is sending the Orion capsule out to the moon and back. And uh, there's a little flotilla of CubeSats there. Scout will pop off. It's going to use its solar sail to actually leave lunar orbit and go visit a, uh, a near-Earth asteroid and do kind of a slow flyby. And so it really is a beautiful add-on to uh, the Light Sail 2 mission. And um, there's a Space Act agreement between uh, the folks working on that mission at NASA and the Planetary Society. So there's uh, been a lot of information exchanged. That'll be really neat to see and a good um, demonstration of uh, how these little missions can do some actual science using both small spacecraft and solar sailing propulsion. But then we just got word at the end of the year... Uh, or near the end of the year here, that another NASA mission was just approved, um, called Solar Cruiser. It's slated for launch in 2025. The same uh, principal investigator, Les Johnson at Marshall Space Flight Center, he's he's going to be working on that one as well. This is an even bigger sail, uh, 1,700 square meters, and it's going to fly out to the L1 point, And that's this point between Earth and the sun where the gravity kind of balances in a way that lets your spacecraft orbit one kind of an imaginary point in space without using too much fuel and it's going to do some really neat orbital maneuvers out there that you'd only be able to do with solar sailing and so we're going to have a lot more cool stuff on that to come out in january but you heard it heard it here first the uh, plan rad sneak peek it's really neat i think all of us are just really excited to see these future missions that just are taking the technology a step further and building on light sail too
0: And you're going to see Les Johnson or hear Les Johnson return to Planetary Radio before long, the PI, for both of these upcoming uh, sail projects and other coverage that will be uh, coming from Jason at
3: planetary.org. Casey? I just want to emphasize here, and and I'm pretty sure this is correct, so Bruce, jump in and correct me if if I'm wrong, but light sail is still the only successful spacecraft that has been funded through Kickstarter and through people, right? No other spacecraft has launched that has gone through a Kickstarter process. All those other projects did not launch and probably don't exist anymore. So I just want to emphasize that. Good job, all of you listening who funded LightSail, because you backed the right horse. You trusted us on this, and we got you (laughs) into space, and it's still going.
4: As far as I know, that is quite correct. And uh, we should always thank and mention over 50,000 people between Kickstarter and other methods donated to support LightSail, and that's uh, entirely supported by those people from over 100 countries around the world. So I think that we've fulfilled
0: the innovation portion of the Planetary (laughs) Society mission with light sail and more in 2020. But another big part of that is planetary defense. And uh, Casey, we'll stick with you. What's uh, the status of uh, defending our planet?
3: Well, Matt, I don't know if you noticed this year, but there was this thing, a global pandemic that was (laughs) happening. And (laughs) (laughs) I I
0: haven't left the house much, so I probably missed it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, for some reason, I didn't leave the house much either uh, this year. But there's an interesting relationship between those two things, right? A global pandemic is a high-impact, low-probability event. They occasionally happen. We know that they occasionally happen, but we don't exactly know when they will happen. This year, we got the short straw and we had the global pandemic. And we've learned a lot and we've seen... Various countries react in different ways, and we've seen the value of the countries that have gone through similar scares in the past, particularly in the uh, Asia-Pacific region, who are much more set up to manage the consequences and and public health needs of a sudden exponentially growing virus. There's a lot of things that we can take from coronavirus and apply to planetary defense in terms of how we approach this as a problem. And that was this fundamental relationship that we made to this upcoming decadal survey process, which is from the National Academy of Sciences here in the United States. We're saying, like, look, there is no example of of a higher impact event than an asteroid collision. And just like with viruses, you have to make sure you're looking ahead to see are there dangers coming your way? Uh, do you have ways to inoculate or to rapidly create the equivalent of vaccines, right, aka planetary defense or being able to change the course of an asteroid? Do you have the technology ready for that if a threat arises? And how do you manage the public response to that? What we've seen from coronavirus is that we are woefully unprepared for the a, a serious threat from planetary defense. Uh, we've definitely made progress over the years, right, in finding new uh, near-Earth asteroids. In fact, one of our Shoemaker Grant Fellows found a a new kilometer sized one that we'd almost found all of this year. But there are tens of thousands of smaller ones that still pose a threat that we are not able to look for because we don't have basic things like a space-based telescope, this Neo Surveyor mission uh, that we're trying to support this year. So the Planetary Society has been really kicking up its advocacy for planetary defense. Uh, We see a lot of general support for it, and we really need to turn that general support into specific action get our space-based telescope, and surveyor out there looking for these things. We need to continue our ground-based observations and we need to be really investing in deflection technology. Uh, we're seeing a step forward with that, with the DART mission that should launch next year, very exciting mission, but we need to be thinking bigger and longer term. And of course, in an entire government and global sense of how we organize these things. And that's an ongoing process that we will continue to support.
0: Kate, it's called planetary defense, not uh, United States defense or UK defense or anything else that would be specific to any one nation. What is the general uh, feeling across the world? Are we getting through to people around the world as well as uh, in the United States about the importance of this?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And I loved Casey's analogy to the uh, pandemic because Similarly, if there is an incoming asteroid, it's going to take a ton of global collaboration and coordination to deal with it, because this is never going to be a really localized event, even if it's a small enough asteroid that the physical damage is localized. There are still going to be huge repercussions globally. So coordinating around the world is super important, and raising public awareness around the world is also super important among our members who are distributed around the world. We do see a lot of support for planetary defense initiatives. We get great participation whenever whenever we're raising funds and awareness for um, the Shoemaker Grant Program. We have resources in our Action Center on our website where people can go and get tools to teach others in their community about the asteroid threat and what can be done about it. But there's always more work to be done because I think for the most part, people who aren't already members of the planetary society and hearing all the things that we say all the time. I don't think people really are aware of the reality of the asteroid threat. I think it seems more like something out of science fiction. And speaking of which, uh, there's an interesting light sail connection. I was doing some very important research uh, over the holidays for an article that I'll be writing soon. Um, I had to watch the movie Armageddon for this very important research. And I found that uh, in one of the scenes where NASA is floating ideas of what they can do about this incoming asteroid, they suggest a solar sail as a way of, uh, of shifting its course. So I thought that was kind of cool, worth mentioning. It all comes back together. But anyway, it's our job to take this from being in the realm of science fiction and movies and into reality for people and drive home that this is a real threat that people can do something about. And I think there's going to be a really interesting opportunity with the Apophis flyby, which I'm hoping Bruce can talk a little bit more about. But I think that's going to be a really cool opportunity to get the public more aware of the reality of asteroids and channel that awareness into advocacy and action
1: i also did some important bruce willis uh research this holiday season uh but it was watching die hard you know because that is <laughs> a classic, classic christmas movie classic christmas music uh, movie i'm sure uh, too so far-fetched i'm sure there, far are,
2: fetched. there are there <laughs> are uh, applications you can find to our work as uh, space advocates <laughs> yes. i'm sure there's a connection
0: bruce yes. you just uh, were a virtual attendee at an apophis workshop were you not
4: I was, and uh, we had hoped that Hans Gruber would give one of the talks, but apparently <laughs> someone let him He's go. disposed. Sorry. Uh, yes, I participated in, uh, Casey and I uh, had a presentation at the Apophis T-9 years workshop. Apophis is a roughly 300-meter asteroid that would cause massive regional damage uh, if it impacted. Good news, not hitting in 2029, Better news, flying by closer than our geostationary satellites will be visible from uh, Europe and Africa with the naked eye. We basically were emphasizing this is an opportunity to do exactly what Cade said, which is to raise awareness of the asteroid threat and what we're doing about it and integrate it into advocacy and all sorts of things. So that was a, a good experience.
3: This is a perfect opportunity to say, can we scramble and send a series of small missions to Apophis as it flies by? This is a perfect way to integrate new technologies with small Sats, with uh, rapid public-private partnerships, and with university consortiums to say, what can we do on a small scale on a fast pace to better understand something if it's going to be coming by us? And notably, I think uh, it's important you do this without altering its trajectory so it doesn't inadvertently come and hit us later. Uh, But it's a really great opportunity to say, you know, these things whiz by us all the time. And again, this is uh, Rick Benzel's uh, from MIT's classic phrase, you know, right now we've depended on luck for all of human history not to get hit by one of these, but luck is not a plan.
0: And Bruce, you want to say another word about uh, this round of Shoemaker funding, Shoemaker Neo grant funding?
4: For 23 years, we've been doing the Shoemaker NEO grants, Near Earth Object grants, funding mostly really advanced amateurs around the world to upgrade their telescopic systems to do mostly critical follow-up observations to find orbits of uh, asteroids and then also do characterization, whether it's one asteroid or two asteroids comes out of things like these observations. Uh, This year, we had six grant winners over the course of the program. We've now given about 60 grants to uh, roughly 20 countries around the world, funded uh, about a half million dollars. This year, we also had kind of an interesting thing that Casey alluded to, which is that Leonardo Amaral, who's one of our recent winners in Brazil, actually discovered a one-kilometer asteroid. And that is rare these days to find them at all. They've been mostly found. Typically, they're found first by the professional surveys. But the advantage that Leonardo has, and part of the appeal to funding him, is he's in the southern hemisphere in Brazil and was able to see a part of the sky that the professional surveys currently can't see.
0: So congratulations once again, Leonardo. And to all of you uh, members of the Planetary Society who are making these discoveries uh, possible, who knows, we might just uh, save the world, as, as the boss likes to say. My colleagues and I will be back with more about the year in space and our view of 2021 and beyond. This is Planetary Radio.
2: Hi, I'm Kate from the Planetary Society. For all its troubles, 2020 has still seen some terrific space accomplishments. We asked our members and supporters to vote for their 2020 favorites. You can see the results at planetary.org slash best of 2020. We're talking about the best solar system image, the most exciting moment in planetary science, and much more. That's planetary.org slash best of 2020. Happy holidays from the Planetary Society.
0: Let's do something that uh, no other humans have done for nearly 50 years now and head for the moon. Casey, Artemis, Uh, there was supposed to be a a big test, right? A big noise down south. Uh, Is that happening? (laughs)
3: The green run, the uh, static fire test of the first stage of the space launch system rocket has not yet happened as we are recording this. We seem to be getting closer to it, maybe asymptotically, as we will maybe perhaps never approach it at at this rate. (laughs) Frustrating. Uh, Jason and I were just talking about how we were down there at Mississippi, Stennis Space Center, four years ago now, a little over four years ago?
1: Yeah, 2016, I believe, yeah.
3: And they were talking about doing the green run the next year, 2017, so uh, (laughs) they were building all this. This is a big, huge infrastructure effort, very complicated, they're running into a number of things. It's designed to find the problems, right? So it's okay to find problems, but the green run hasn't happened yet. Uh, It seems to be imminent, and if everything goes okay with that, then they are set up to do the first uncrewed test flight of the Space Launch System in Orion next year.
0: What about the HLS, the Human Landing System? Kind of got short shrift uh, recently, didn't it?
3: Yeah. I mean, when we talk about Artemis, it's a number of things, right? Like they they took the existing programs of the SLS and Orion. Those predated Artemis, right? Those are almost 10 years old now. Orion's even older. It's 15 years old. And they call that part of Artemis, because that's what you send humans to the vicinity of the moon with. You have the Gateway space station uh, still moving forward, though it's uh, hitting its own series of issues and delays. And then of course, to land on the moon, you need something to land on the moon with. And right now they're they're taking the lessons of commercial crew in low earth orbit and testing it, trying it out to say, can we do the same types of partnerships to land on the moon? No one knows that this will work by the way, right? Like we don't know where the proper realm of public private partnerships is, right? We've only done a few of them. It could work. It'd be great. It could also not work. And so what they're trying to do is they right now have three different companies or consortiums of organizations that NASA is partnering with to develop lunar landing uh, systems for humans. And NASA had requested this year, in the final year of the Trump administration, to spend about $3.5 billion on that project in 2021. Congress ultimately gave them $850 million, so about 25%. Now we can say for sure, right, now that the president signed this into law, not happening in 2024. There's no possible way we can get a human landing system ready, funded at that level, no matter how deep pockets are with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk in three years, three and a half years. So basically, Congress did not really believe or was not convinced that it was worth the money now to spend on those systems. In the same vein, though, if you think about it, This is another chunk of money for landing people on the moon, which has not been a project that has had money spent on it since the 1960s. So it's still important, but we need to have a realistic timetable, and that's what the new Biden administration will get to decide.
0: NASA has also proudly trumpeted the international collaboration that uh, is uh, shaping around Artemis, Kate, your nation, Canada, big part of that, but uh, many others as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, from a Canadian perspective, it's very exciting. Just a couple of weeks ago, we announced a treaty between the Canadian Space Agency and NASA to have Canada contribute another Canadarm, which famous in Canada, at least we love it, the Canadarm. We had those on a space shuttle and on the International Space Station. It's this fantastic robotic arm that facilitates all kinds of critical functions for these spacecraft So we're going to be contributing one of those to the Gateway. This will also help whenever the Gateway is not occupied by astronauts. The Canadarm3 will be able to autonomously perform its functions. So it's a cool, exciting new piece of technology. And in return, Canada is going to be able to send astronauts on two Artemis missions, including Artemis 2, which will be the first crewed mission, and it'll orbit the Moon. And what's really exciting about this, not just for Canada, but for the world, is that This will be the first time that a non-US astronaut enters deep space. It's a different trajectory than has been done before in the Apollo program. So it's technically taking the astronauts further beyond the lunar far side than ever before. So a Canadian astronaut will be among the people to go further than anyone's ever gone. So that's, of course, very exciting. There's also the possibility that other space agencies will make similar treaties. So maybe we won't be the only international participants. Maybe we'll tie with some some European astronaut or something. That's all right with us. It's still exciting.
0: So rest assured, uh, Kate, we love Canadarm down here as well.
3: (laughs) Uh, Casey? I just wanted to add, this is one of the reasons why I think Gateway is such an important element of Artemis, and this is actually where you have seen the majority of the international agreements come in on, is not the landing on the moon aspect of Artemis. It's at the Gateway Station. So Canada's on it. Uh, they've had an agreement with Australia. They're about to sign an agreement with Brazil. European uh, Space Agency has a, a big commitment to Gateway. Uh, they'll be adding a module. Japan will be adding a module. And then they also get their share of astronaut slots going out there as well. And so this is one of the big advantages. This is really, again, building off of the International Space Station model of international uh, shared and joint exploration, that you can have these immense, complicated, but fundamentally peaceful projects of exploration that bring people together for these great endeavors. This is why I think you will see things like the Gateway stand a much more likely chance to continue under a new administration than some people I think have given it credit for because of these types of agreements. You don't want to now pull the rug out from under Canada and disappoint everybody by saying, sorry, you don't get to have your astronaut go out anymore Mm -hmm. because we don't have a Gateway station. That's just kind of rude. Uh, not that Americans are ever known for doing that, but uh, <laughs> we have, I think, a, a commitment from the incoming Biden administration. One of their tenets is to rebuild their international relationships. And so mm-hmm. I see this as being a very strong sign that this would continue.
2: Also, as a stepping stone towards sending humans to Mars, I think the the process of sort of establishing how to cooperate internationally in deep space is super important. So the things that we're going to learn I mean, like we learned so much about working together in space uh, with the International Space Station, we're going to learn so much through Gateway and then be able to carry those lessons forward to do Mars human space flight to Mars in a sustainable way, because it's always going to have to be international for it to be sustainable. So this is great practice for that. Jason, in
0: the meantime, as we prepare for this return of humans to our uh, natural satellite, uh, thanks to China, at least, 2020 was a pretty busy place, lunar-wise, and more to come in 2021. What what is the status? As the year went on, uh, Chang'e
1: 4 is still operating on the far side of the moon. Um, It launched back in 2018. It's easy to forget what a huge milestone that was at the time. No one had ever landed on the far side of the moon like that before, It requires a relay satellite, so uh, it was was a big accomplishment for them. But the rover is still going. They've also done some interesting science from that mission. It has a ground-penetrating radar that has been able to look underneath the surface and discern some of the subsurface layers. And a similar version of that is actually flying to Mars on the TN-11 spacecraft's uh, rover. And in the meantime, uh, they also launched Chunga 5, which is over already. (laughs) Uh, It it was very quick by, you know, space mission standards kind of fly to the moon, land, get samples and return to Earth. Um, That was the first sample return since uh, the Soviet Union's Luna 24 mission back in 1976. So it's kind of hard to believe that it's been that long since we brought anything back from the moon. Uh, But China did it. Um, That was a hugely ambitious mission it used Apollo-style docking techniques, right? So it had uh, it had the spacecraft wait in orbit and then launch back off the surface and rendezvous in lunar orbit. That had never been done before and an automated rendezvous like that. You know, the Apollo missions all had people in, in orbit helping control it. So that was hugely ambitious, and that really paves the way for their technologies going forward. To top it off, they got uh, 1.7 kilograms of samples that was slightly less, as I understand it, than they had hoped to get uh, because their drill encountered some rocks underneath the surface that it couldn't get past, or at least because it was such a short mission, um, they didn't want to risk damaging the drill. They wanted to get the samples and get out of there uh, before uh, anything else went wrong. A big success for them, and that was the major uh, you know activity around the moon. These robotic missions. If you look back to see when China started all of this, I think Chunga, The first Chunga mission was like in two thousand and seven. It's just been astonishing to see their very stepwise methodical progress. And, um, you know, now they have a a mission going to uh, Mars right now. It's really exciting in terms of the science return, uh, these international contributions that are coming in.
3: What else goes into space and needs to come back, like sample return? People, Hmm. right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is... A dry run, in a sense, or practicing the same types of techniques and things. Sam- this is why a sample return tends to be expensive robotically, and this is why human spaceflight is expensive, because you need to bring your payload back alive uh, and, and in good shape. To Jason's point about the stepwise approach that China's been taking, uh, you know, this feeds into, I think, a clear, larger goal... But then at the same time, we just have to acknowledge that this was a spectacular success. I have just been so impressed with the speed at which they've been developing this very advanced capability and just nailing it. And we saw the previous year, multiple attempts to land on the moon, India and Bereshit uh, from the Israeli uh, private organization. Both of those failed because landing on the moon is really hard. And here China does that and then takes off, rendezvous in space, comes back and, and succeeds in that entire mission. So that's not an easy thing to do. And this is a real statement of capability by this upcoming space
0: power. Bruce, China will have company before too long up there, including a spacecraft carrying a project that the Planetary Society had a a role in.
4: Yes, PlanetVac, which is uh, one of our Great success stories of Planetary Society science and technology enabled by our members and donors because PlanetVac, Planetary Vacuum, which is a surface sampling technique that basically sucks the material up or blows it into a sample container attached to a lander leg, PlanetVac had funding issues in first in 2013 and then in 2018 where in their development of this honeybee robotics needed infusion of money at key times. And our uh, members provided that. And so it advanced to the next level, first with a vacuum chamber test and then a test on a R- mast and rocket in the California desert. And now it's been selected to go to the moon, launching nominally in 2023 as a technology demonstration for NASA. And then also in 2024. It's going to be flying to Phobos, Mars's moon, on the Japanese MMX mission, which is a Phobos sample return. It'll be one of the two methods of collecting samples that will come back to Earth. So we're Very excited. Very exciting stuff, yeah. Onward to Mars, which
0: uh, we still believe the moon is a stepping stone, to, to. That's what a lot of people say. Lots to look forward to. Maybe this is the most exciting stuff coming up in 2021, certainly early in the year. Uh, Jason, take us through it. In pandemic
1: time, everything has been such a blur. I I feel like I can hardly remember some of these missions. But uh, at the time, this was huge. Uh, We had three big Mars launches all in July, all at once to meet the small window when Mars and uh, Earth are optimally aligned to send a spacecraft there. So in July, we had the Hope Orbiter launch. It's a mission from the United Arab Emirates. And there's also um, some other international collaboration on that as well. That's the Arab world's first uh, Mars mission. And that was successful and it's on its way. tn one the orbiter and rover that we already mentioned, that was China's mission. It's their first uh, mission that they've launched to Mars fully on their own. They did have a, um, a ride-along spacecraft on the Phobos grunt mission that uh, sadly did not make it all the way to Mars. Didn't even make it out of Earth orbit, sadly. Perseverance also launched at the same uh, in the same window that was NASA's big flagship rover. It's uh, basically an advanced upgraded version of the Curiosity rover. And so all of those are going to arrive in February. Just to run through some cool highlights of each. Hope, it's going to do the first complete picture of Mars's atmospheric processes from top to bottom. Tn11 is another huge leap for China in terms of uh, technology demonstration. It's basically like a miniature Viking mission for them. They've got an orbiter, and then they'll drop a lander as well after arrival. I mentioned before that subsurface radar that uh, might be able to detect pockets of water under the surface. And then Perseverance, which also has a, uh, a radar, ground-penetrating radar uh, instrument on it. And Perseverance is going to directly search for signs of past life, which is just hugely exciting. It's going to land in this. River delta, and we know uh, on Earth, river deltas just preserve um, signs of past life, and they're good places to find indicators of life. And it has a couple instruments to look. Um, there's a, uh, an instrument called Pixel that can look for microscopic fossils. It has these Raman spectrometers that use ultraviolet light to uh, find organics. And then, of course, there's uh, the other main function of Perseverance, which is that it's going to collect samples and store those and uh, return those to Earth. It won't be returning them to Earth, but uh, other future missions will. So, big uh, big Mars year. Casey, sample return from
0: Mars still the holy grail, isn't it? <laughs>
3: But we're one step closer. We've like gotten to the cave that holds it, right? Like in <laughs> Indiana Jones, We've, we just now need to walk the path and answer all the riddles correctly.
0: Just watch out for that rabbit.
3: <laughs> yeah. And we have to choose wisely um, how we proceed. So yeah, sample return. 1978 budget request for NASA has a line in it right after Viking that says, we're looking into pursuing sample return. We were requesting $10 million to study this effort, hopefully for some time in the late 1980s. Did not happen, obviously, right? We did not return samples, not even try We didn't have a Mars mission after Viking until Mars Observer in the mid to late 80s. Late 1990s, we had this whole new Mars program where we were sending small missions to Mars all the time with this goal, Mars sample return, early 2000s. Then, of course, you had the failures of Mars Polar Lander and Climate Orbiter. There goes your Mars sample return. Reformulated the entire program, wanted to do Mars sample return in the 2010s. Budget collapsed again, got pushed back. With Perseverance, taking these samples, dropping them on on the surface of Mars, we are taking the first step in this multi-mission effort that has been a goal for almost 50 years now. This is a huge deal. And we're not just leaving them there to rot, right? We actually got in this latest budget that just passed less than 24 hours ago as we're recording this. $263 million to begin the first phase A, the first formulation, the formal start of the second mission to grab those samples and launch them off the surface. We have signed an agreement with the European Space Agency who has stepped up with billions of euros on their side to create the Mars Earth return spacecraft and to create the fetch rover on the surface. This is a big deal that has been years in the making, and we actually secured the funding in both space agencies, and they're starting working on it now. It's a huge win for us and for the Mars community and for planetary exploration in general.
0: Kate, that ESA role, it is really key to making this happen, to bringing back those bits of Mars.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I'll say this again and again all the time, that there's so much more that you can accomplish when you work together. I mean, the more nations and space agencies and companies develop their own independent capabilities the more opportunities we have to work together to accomplish things that would be impossible or at least very very difficult uh, as individual nations so sample return from mars is a great example of something that. It's so important, but it's so difficult. It's expensive. It requires sustained funding over over the course of many administrations. And we know in the U.S. that's difficult to assure that, that you'll have that. So having international agreements really helps, and having just more more space agencies pitching in that really helps a lot. And and likewise, when we're seeing like the Hope mission and Tanwen one, these are really great advances for other countries in their space programs, and it's also just bringing them closer to the to the level where they can collaborate and contribute and and just make so much more happen. So I'm I'm all for all this collaboration, everybody coming to the table.
0: You bet. Let's return to Perseverance for a moment before we move on. And uh, I will remind listeners, most of you probably heard it, Uh, Our guest, Mike Hecht, just in uh, the last week or two here on Planetary Radio, talking about MOXIE and this experiment to create oxygen on the surface of Mars, which probably is going to be key to getting humans there and, even more important, back again. But not just that, because Bruce, perseverance is also the fulfillment of something we at the Society have been pushing for for years. Can I hear you on this?
4: Yes, you can. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Through a microphone. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like s- a good
3: idea to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've the heard plan- good things. <laughs> Planetary Society's
4: been pushing for uh, puns for its entire history, <laughs> and for microphones <laughs> since at least the mid nineteen nineties, uh, when Carl Sagan, as one of our founders, wrote a letter to NASA recommending this. The concept being. That in addition to the science you might do, we're actually adding a second sense, but beyond pictures and sight, to actually make this a a real world to people, an experiential activity. And we flew on Mars Polar Lander, which crashed in uh, 1999, and we were selected for the French Netlander mission, which was canceled. And we almost were selected for several additional missions, but now microphones are flying. And there are microphones from NASA for entry, descent, and landing. So hopefully we'll hear the pyro charges going off and the wind rushing by. And then the uh, SuperCam instrument has got a microphone integrated into it to not only listen to sounds for recreational purposes and excitement, but also to... We integrate into their laser zapping instrument that zaps a rock with a laser, vaporizes it, looks at the spectra from it. Well, they can actually determine some things from the loudness of the crack when it does that vaporizing of rock material. So we're, we're very excited that uh, we're finally going to hear Mars.
1: I cannot wait to see the video uh, because I believe we're having, once again, um, good entry, descent and landing video um, or It's still images that will be spliced together to look like high definition video that synchronized with the audio of the charges firing and all the separation noises. I mean, I'm I'm ready to have my mind blown. I
0: can't I can't wait. Stay tuned to this conversation because we're going to talk about how the Planetary Society is going to make it uh, even easier and more exciting for all of you out there to uh, participate in this uh, arrival at Mars of Perseverance. You might think from this conversation, Jason, that sample return from Mars and elsewhere, this this might actually prove to be a big deal. Uh, 2020 gave us lots more evidence of that. Yes, it was the year-o-sample collection. Uh, No,
1: sorry. It was the year-o-sample return. We already did the collections. Well, we did a collection in 2020. Hayabusa 2 returned its samples from Ryugu. It had collected them already, and it finally got them back to Earth in December. They have just now, uh, in the past few days, opened the sample container and uh, discovered that they did get a lot of good samples Um, including there was some uh, fun on Twitter. I don't know if any of you saw that um, there was a mysterious metal object in one of the containers that, to me, it kind of looked like a gum wrapper almost. But um, what actually probably happened was it's a piece of aluminum that came off the inside of the um, collection tube um, when they fired the little bullet into Ryugu. Yeah, we got those samples back, and uh, that's really exciting. At the same time, OSIRIS-REx, NASA's mission to Bennu, That collected its samples. It was so successful, it was almost actually too successful. When they uh, collected the material and were getting ready to stow the container, took some photos of it, they noticed they were leaking pieces of Bennu outside of the container. One of the flaps was kind of jammed open. Um, So there was actually a little bit of uh, concern for them that they weren't going to be able to store the samples correctly because they had too much um, but they did get it in safely, and it'll be departing for Earth next year. And then we already mentioned Chunga 5 returning its
0: moon samples. So, yeah, big year for sample return. Especially from asteroids. Bruce, why is this so significant? Remind us.
4: Well, asteroids are kind of like time capsules from the early solar system. They're mostly unaltered, depending on your asteroid, and they preserve the early history of the solar system. So it's useful in learning uh, about that and what was coming to Earth in terms of material early in the process. The other thing to keep in mind is how important sample return is scientifically. Uh, Wherever you're collecting from, you collect and you have context of where you've brought it from, and then you bring the samples back to Earth. Well, despite all the advances in instrument technology for spacecraft, there are still instruments that we can't fly easily on spacecraft, notably radioisotope dating instruments. And so being able to bring them back and use the full capabilities of Earth laboratories and allow multiple scientists to get samples and do the studies to make sure everyone's in agreement, or not, as the case may be, is incredibly important.
0: Let's turn back to advocacy. And for that, we'll go to the chief advocate, because um, that is such a big part of what the Planetary Society does, and maybe the biggest event of 2020 in that area. Casey, would you say that about uh, the Day of Action?
3: It was, but I think by default, because coronavirus hit basically three weeks later after the uh, day of action in 2020. (laughs) But we did. We had it was a great day of action. We inadvertently timed it perfectly. Uh, Everyone was safe. Uh, We had 115 people from 28 different states across the United States all fly themselves right on their own dime to Washington, D.C., or drive or take the bus or however they traveled and we met with 168 offices we pushed for our top priorities from our sample return for the restoration of funding for the roman space telescope for support for planetary exploration for planetary defense they just did a great job it was so much fun it was the biggest crowd that we had ever had and it was just a, a great experience and again the timing was couldn't have been better Uh, It was one of the last trips I end up physically taking last year and probably also for a lot of people. But again, just if we had put it much later, it would would not have happened in the same way. So grateful that it worked out the way it did. We are just seeing the results of their work now. So this is the delayed satisfaction aspect of advocacy, right? We had to go through this whole thing. But what we advocated for, we largely got in the final budget for for, uh, NASA this year. We got the funding from our sample return. We helped restore funding for the Roman Space Telescope. We got a commitment to a 2025 launch date for the Neo Surveyor mission. We saw increased funding for planetary science and critically for two operating Mars missions, uh, Odyssey and Curiosity, that were both looking at very significant cuts to their operations to the point of basically canceling Odyssey. Both those missions are restored. Our advocates did that work and then we followed up on it for the rest of the year and we got the results that we were looking for.
0: I was uh, just enjoying the latest edition of the Planetary Report, our quarterly magazine, and there was a, a little piece in there about the success of the Day of Action. Two significant things, Representative Judy Chu commenting because the Planetary Society was commended, last year, and she was talking about the importance of hearing from people like the folks who show up for the Day of Action, but also the quote from one of the people who had made their way to Washington on their own dime and said they had always thought up until now of Congress and what goes on inside the Beltway as them, and now she knew it was us, which I, I found rather touching myself. Kate we're the planetary society. We're not going to get any minor irritant like a pandemic get in the way of a, a day of action for 2021, are we?
2: Absolutely not. We are not going to let a pandemic stop us from advocating for what we believe in. So on March 31st, 2021, we will be doing another day of action. And it will, of course, be virtual this time around because can't send people to D.C. like we used to, but we will be organizing virtual visits for people who sign up to participate. So if you go to planetary.org slash day of action, you can find out all about that and register. Um, I definitely encourage every U.S. citizen listening to do that. Now, if you're not a U.S. citizen or if you are, but you just don't really have the time to do this full on day of action, there are definitely other ways you can participate. And we outline those at that same website. We give you instructions for calling your representative in Congress, writing a letter. If you live outside the United States, we provide talking points on these same priorities that people are going to be advocating for to Congress. You can advocate for them to your representatives in government, to your community, your friends, your family, just spreading the word of what we think is the most important things to be working towards in space science and exploration. The more we can get the word out about those, the more we're able to make them actually happen. So there are lots of ways for people to, to get involved, whether signing up for the official day of action or participating from home.
0: Let's continue this look ahead at uh, not just 2021, but maybe beyond that. Uh, Jason, beginning with the James Webb Space Telescope. Boy, have we been waiting a long time for that.
1: Yes, quite a long time, and we might finally see it happen next year. Yeah, the December TPR, actually, we opened with a picture uh, of the James Webb Space Telescope. We were looking for something to put in that little blurb about it. I went back looking for, well, when did it actually start? And, you know, conceptually, uh, scientists have been wanting a new telescope, even when Hubble was getting built and launched. But NASA finally announced the name in 2002. Uh, I was able to find a good press release from then. And at that time, they said it was going to launch in 2010. You know, it's common for uh, these big uh, one-of-a-kind projects to, you know, go over budget, uh, fall behind. That happens quite a bit. But, um, you know, it's been particularly rough for James Webb. However, if all goes well, right now it is on track for launch on uh, October 31st, 2021. Halloween, if you celebrate or, uh, you know, you want to make it particularly scary, because I think everybody is going to be terrified when uh, this giant billions of dollars invested in this observatory flies. Once it gets up there, uh, boy, it's just going to be incredible. There's so many we could go on and on about all the astrophysics functions it's going to have and um, planetary science. Um, One of the things I'm really excited about personally is um, exoplanets. And I know um, there's already a proposal to use it to image the TRAPPIST-1 system, which has a bunch of um, habitable zone planets. So um, really cool. And we're keeping our fingers crossed that it happens next year.
0: The Planetary Report, which, of course, the digital version of that is available to everybody for free at planetary.org. Members get the beautiful print edition, which I was enjoying. Casey, what are you looking forward to?
3: Well, again, I don't know if you've heard, but we will have a new president coming in, new administration, January 20th. So I'm absolutely looking forward to their space policy development that will be happening. And, of course, we'll be part of that discussion with them And I'm looking forward to who the new NASA administrator is going to be and where they're going to try to take the agency. We do also have a new Congress coming in. We still don't know exactly which party is going to control the Senate. And we're going to have a much closer, much narrower Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. And so there's a lot more people to engage, a lot of new people to engage. And the Planetary Society is planning an aggressive effort to really push our priorities and your priorities, the Planetary Defense Search for Life, and planetary exploration. Always with advocacy, there is never an end to it, right? There's always new people to advocate to, there's always change, there's always people you have to introduce to these ideas for the first time. That's why we have to do this on a year-round schedule every day, day in, day out. And that will be keeping us quite busy as we go forward uh, in the next year.
0: Bruce, there's a big announcement coming up from uh, your side of the Planetary Society, that innovation side. What, building on Shoemaker-Neo?
4: Building on that and just literally since the beginning, we have been doing science and technology grant funding since the beginning of the Planetary Society within a year after its founding. We'll be launching a new grant program, the STEP grants, science and technology empowered by the public. Around the beginning of February, we'll be putting out a request for proposals and calling for anything that fits within our core enterprises, basically within the purview of the Planetary Society. You'll be able to learn more about that in a little over a month.
0: Kate, much going on around the world for us to look forward to as well. We'll continue to look to uh, you to fill in the international side of this.
2: I can't possibly cover all the things that everybody's doing around the world, but I'll pick my favorites I'm definitely looking forward to James Webb Space Telescope launching, crossing my fingers that that happens next year, because I, too, have been watching that launch date just slide and slide and slide. But that is going to be such a spectacular instrument. And even though it's a NASA mission, there's going to be a lot of international participation. Lots of scientists around the world are going to be able to use that instrument to do amazing research and discover incredible things. And I just cannot wait to see what we're going to see with that. We've got some really cool missions coming from the European Space Agency launching in 2022. So not directly on the horizon, but coming up real soon. Uh, So their Rosalind Franklin Mars Rover will be launching and their JUICE uh, Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer spacecraft is going to be launching. And I am personally a humongous fan of the cool moons and I guess also hot moons of Jupiter. Um, So I'm really excited to, to study those up close. I mean i know it's going to be several years before it actually arrives but still looking forward to all of that
3: one thing that we should acknowledge just looking back to the year just the big thing is how successful nasa and other space agencies were in continuing their program despite the pandemic i think that's worth acknowledging that we saw a mars launch multiple mars launches right we saw commercial crew happen we saw a number of missions continue development where there was no guarantee that would happen. If they had missed those launch windows, we'd be waiting two more years and spending hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I just want to take this moment. I mean, this was not a a guaranteed outcome, but NASA and their partners and aerospace companies and agencies around the world really stepped up and did it as safe as they could and continued this opportunity to explore despite this incredible, unpredicted Challenge.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. All right. Let's call this next round in the few moments we have left a a lightning round. As uh, I'll give each of you a chance to uh, look forward one more time, I'll get us started. I mean, we already mentioned uh, the uh, EM1 launch, that first launch of that big rocket, the uh, Space Launch System hopefully carrying, well, it will be carrying, the NeoScout solar sail. But uh, it's going to be a big year on the commercial side. Uh, We have high hopes for Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin's new Glenn rocket uh, may actually take to the skies uh, in this coming year. I think they're talking about late in 2021 now. And, of course, Starship from SpaceX is uh, already... It may not have ended successfully, but it sure was an impressive flight, uh, watching that gigantic rocket fly horizontally. I mean, it really, I don't know, folks, it reminded me of something out of an old Flash Gordon serial watching that <laughs> thing.
1: It was like the space shuttle only without the big wings and actually a rocket. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs>
2: yeah,
3: right. I'll never grow yeah. tired of watching SpaceX blow up their rockets.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah.
3: Apparently Elon
0: doesn't either.
2: As much as you wish for success, it is exciting to see a huge explosion. Yeah,
3: particularly, <laughs> again, best timing at the end, right? So they got all the data they needed and then just toss in an explosion, just a perfect finish.
2: <laughs> just for fun.
0: <laughs> just for fun. Bruce, you got anything else uh, that we should be putting on the calendar?
4: Light Sail 2, still going, still flying, still doing good stuff. Uh, we also funded part of Deborah Fisher at Yale, her 100 Earths program, searching for Earth-sized planets around other stars. They'll be continuing to search, including using equipment provided by the Planetary Society. And uh, we've got another Planetary Defense Conference that the Planetary Society is a primary sponsor for, the one conference that brings together all the experts from all sorts of different areas in planetary defense. We also have a new Shoemaker Neo grant round call coming in a few months and farther in the future, I'm, uh, I'm excited about that Apophis flyby in 2029 and what we can make out of it.
0: Kate, you'll get the last word. We've hinted at it here and there. Uh, we've got big plans to celebrate around Perseverance. Tell us about Planet Fest.
2: Yes, so mark your calendars for February 13th and 14th. It's a weekend. You might have to sacrifice some of your Valentine's Day plans, but it'll be worth it because we are doing a Planet Fest Throughout the Planetary Society's history, we've tended to mark major mission milestones like landings on Mars with Planet Fest. So it's always a huge celebration. Normally, we do this in person in Pasadena, where we're headquartered. Because of the pandemic, obviously, we're not doing that, which is actually, in my opinion, as someone who doesn't live in Pasadena, this is fantastic, <laughs> because then people from around the world can participate. It's going to be a virtual event, two days of excellent panels, fascinating topics being discussed by world-class experts. Workshops where you can learn things yourself that will be useful to you as a space lover, a space advocate, and culminating with a watch party of the landing itself, which we are going to see and hear for the first time. It's going to be absolutely phenomenal. So mark your calendars. We're going to be talking about it lots more in the coming weeks. Um, I'm sure Matt will talk about it on Planetary Radio. If you Make sure you sign up for our email newsletter at planetary.org connect. It's going to be a heck of a party.
0: And how. And I happen to know, I don't think we're prepared to reveal the names just yet, but we have some terrific people lined up to participate in that uh, two-day Virtual celebration, Planet Fest, followed on February eighteenth by our our. Uh, we'll, we'll be complementing NASA's own coverage of seven more minutes of terror as Perseverance descends to the Martian surface. The rumor is that we might actually be joined by Bill Nye, the Science Guy. Can you confirm that, Kate?
2: I mean, he's got a busy schedule, but I think he'll make the time for us. <laughs>
0: Thank you, folks. Thank you, colleagues. It has been a wonderful year serving with all of you and all the rest of our colleagues. I sure am looking to 2021, which is going to kick off with a bang with all that activity out at the Red Planet. Jason, Kate, Casey, Bruce, look forward to working with you.
2: Thank you. Yeah, here's to
3: fewer plagues next year.
2: Yeah, Fingers <laughs> crossed.
3: Here's to it. Thank you.
1: What if we see each other in person? What will we do?
3: yeah let's not get crazy yeah, really, really that's the dream yeah. i'm used to everyone being postage sized heads in boxes yes. i can't i can't deal with the yeah. stimulus
2: i can't see you in in three dimensions that's too much
3: yeah yeah exactly.
0: get yourself a vr headset <laughs> bruce betts is the planetary society's chief scientist jason davis is our editorial director casey dreyer is chief advocate and senior space policy advisor And Kate Howells is our communication strategy and Canadian space policy advisor. Bruce and I will be right back with What's Up and that very cool
3: contest prize. Hi, this is Jennifer Vaughn, the Planetary Society's Chief Operating Officer. 2020 has been a year like no other. It challenged us, changed us, and helped us grow. Now we look forward to a 2021 with many reasons for hope. Help us create a great start for this promising new year at planetary.org planetaryfund planetary fund. When you invest in the planetary fund, your year-end gift will be matched up to $100,000 thanks to a generous member. Your support will enable us to explore worlds, defend Earth, and find life elsewhere across the cosmos. Please learn more and then donate today at planetary.org planetaryfund planetary fund. Thank you.
0: Bruce is back. Of course, he is stuck around for this week's What's Up? The last one of uh, the year that we will not fondly remember as 2020. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm back <laughs> and better than ever. Well, you may be, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the next year and doing another whole bunch of these with you. I guess we'll do 52 or so in 2021. At least that's the plan. Wait, is there a leap week? And in... No, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I got a message to read. Uh, From Emily Sanzone in Colorado, she said, if you read this, can you shout out to my engineering teacher, Ms. King? I'm a high school student, and she got me a membership to the Planetary Society as an award. We both love space. And I just wanted to know how much I appreciate her. Well, Emily, we did it. You know why? Normally, because we don't want to be inundated with these requests for shout outs and testimonials. But Ms. King did the right thing. She made you a member.
4: So welcome. (laughs) Yay. That's it. What's up? We got Jupiter and Saturn getting lower and lower, disappearing over the next very short time, but still relatively close together, low in the West, soon after sunset, Jupiter being the much brighter of the two. You'll miss them, but they'll reappear in the pre-dawn East by around March. Meanwhile, check out Mars. Really easy to see, that reddish bright thing that looks like a star, high above in the south in the early evening. And check out over to its left towards the east in the early evening. It's now, you can tell, it's northern hemisphere winter or southern hemisphere summer because Orion making its appearance, looking like Orion with a bunch of bright stars. (laughs) So check that out uh, over in the evening east. And then in the pre-dawn, we've got uh, Venus still in the pre-dawn east through most of January, but also it's starting to disappear. Don't worry, it'll be back. I get to try to pronounce it again. The Quadrantids meteor shower, hardest to pronounce of the year for Bruce, uh, peaking on the night of January 2nd and 3rd. Has a pretty sharp peak, so most of the meteors within a few hours of January 3rd at 1430 UTC. Uh, That means Western North America, that's you, Matt, has a good shot at viewing the shower at its best during the pre-dawn hours, probably counts me out, uh, January 3rd. I love Orion.
0: I love having it come back every winter, and I I don't like saying goodbye to it in the spring.
4: (laughs) Oh, it always comes back for you, Matt. On to this week in space history. It was 15 years ago, Matt, that we were celebrating wild about Mars over a two to three day period. Stardust flew through the coma of comet Wild 2, or Wild 2, and the Spirit rover landed on Mars.
0: Yeah, that was a great party.
4: On to space fact. <laughs> the difference between Mars's highest and lowest points is nearly 30 kilometers. That's from the top of Olympus Mons, to vertically to the bottom of what we'll talk about in the trivia question in just a moment. In comparison, Earth is only a little less than 20 kilometers of uh, difference between Mount Everest and the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Mars, it's it's kind of rougher, rougher, rougher,
0: <laughs> high relief as uh, Norman Cossoon said in response to your uh, trivia question. But but go ahead. What was that question?
4: In what feature is the lowest point on Mars? And I assume we did well. Is that correct?
0: We did very well. Yeah, not quite as big a response as last week, which was off the charts. But I already mentioned Norman Cossoon, and he had discovered this term that replaces sea level on Mars and was also noted by Laura Dodd, Hudson-Ansley, and others. Do you know the word I'm talking about?
4: The reference datum?
0: Well, that, but arioid, or I guess it's arioid.
4: Oh, yeah, it's like the geoid um, for Earth, but using Aries as the adjectival version of Mars derived from the Greek Aries. Here's a poetic answer from
0: Gene Lewin in Washington. From the lofty heights of Olympus Mons to the depths of Hellas Crater, one a sloping volcano, the other a planitia. Uh, determined not by sea level, its sea is gone since its formation. It's measured through the Mars areoid, a reference elevation. First of all, is he right about that with Hellas, and is it okay to call it a crater?
4: Yeah, I mean, usually it'd be referred to as an impact basin because it's so dang huge, but it is indeed an impact crater. It's one of the largest in the solar system, and uh, over time it's been... Filled in, forming a f- relatively flat f- floor that's deep down, but 2,300 kilometers wide. It's, it's big. Very big.
0: Ola Franzen, long-time listener, first-time winner. He's in Sweden. Ola said, yep, Alice Planitia. Uh, and for that, Ola, you have won yourself a brand-new design Planetary Society baseball cap, the one you can get from the uh, Chop Shop Planetary Society store at planetary.org slash store. So congratulations. A few people pointed this out that even within Hellas, there's something lower, apparently bad water crater inside the Hellas plane, the hell plane. He says he found this in a book about Mars topology that his partner got him for his birthday this year. Fun to look at, but also good for prizes maybe. Well, not this time, Sam, keep trying, but had you heard of that one? I mean, it's it's basically, I guess,
4: a crater inside a giant crater. There are lots of craters inside <laughs> a giant crater, especially since uh, we tend to get more small impacts later in the solar system history. I had not heard of that, but Badwater is the lowest point uh, in the U.S. in Death Valley. I love this one from Darren Ritchie, also in Washington.
0: The 0.0124 bar of predicted atmospheric pressure at Hellas, wait for it, it's worth it, is 90,870 times less than the 1,126.79 bar measured in 2019 at Earth's lowest point, the Challenger Deep in the Marianas Trench, which uh, Bruce already mentioned. And here's the kicker. Venus and the Gas Giants find this fact cute. (laughs) I love the music by that band, Venus and the (laughs) Gas Giants. Oh, and Venus, man. I, I I I wish her solo career had gone better. Close, We'll close with this poem from Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Hellas Planitia, the Martian Death Valley, was carved by an asteroid back in the day, making the basin. It sinks six kilometers down from the surface. Oh, that's what they say. Just for the record, the sea level number is 6.1 millibars pressure. It's true. Since there's no ocean of water, we substitute measuring pressure of Mars CO2. Nice. Well done. Well
4: done. We're ready for another one of these. Looking back on 2020, here's your question. How many crewed launches to space were there in 2020? How many launches launched people to space in 2020? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest.
0: That's fascinating. I'm started working it out in my head, but uh, I will wait for one of you to answer this by Wednesday, January 6, 2021, at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And appropriately for the start of a new year, a really special prize that's all about things getting started. It's a device called Time Since Launch, and it's from this cool little company, CWT. Uh, that are just a bunch of design interesting people. I won't say geeks. They make all this really amazing stuff. They're at uh, C-W-A-N-D-T or C-N-D or C-W-N-T dot And one of their devices is this thing called Time Since Launch. It is a borosilicate glass tube with well-sealed aluminum ends and a pin. And there's a counter inside. And when you pull the pin out, it immediately starts counting. And it will count. Are you ready, Bruce? How long? Glad you asked. 2,738 years. Wow. (laughs) And so it's like to mark an event. They apparently thought of this because they were looking at the time since launch for Apollo 11 and every other space mission. And uh, they thought, oh, we could do that in a tube and people could buy it. Can't stop it. Once you pull the pin out, it's going. They did make it easier to replace the batteries, although you don't have to do that very often. But there it is, a time since launch device. We'll go to uh, the winner, the one who correctly answers uh, this week's question and is chosen by random.org. Well, time
4: since launch of this uh, What's Up, I think, is complete. You know, we've got a time since launch for LightSail 2 on our website. And that is where again? sale.planetary.org.
0: I'm nothing if not a shill for my organization. Thank We're you. Done.
4: All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about the top three and a half fun things you look forward to doing in 2021. Thank you, and good night.
0: I'm going to get a fast food hamburger. I won't mention the company I want to get one from. Beef? Beef. <laughs> <laughs> Not beef, no. He's uh, Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here for What's Up. Happy New Year, Bruce.
4: Happy New Year, Matt, and everybody out there listening.
0: Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who join me in wishing you the best of New Year's. Mark Hilverda our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astra.